morning we are continuing in our series uh, of Christian, looking at what is the Bible. Um, I think we might also cover miracles today because we've only got 20 minutes to do it in. Uh, and the Bible is obviously a very significant big book to look at. Um, the Bible is a really big part of my story. Uh, I became a Christian at university. I was actually about to be baptised into a different faith. Uh, I was going to become a Mormon. That was kind of what I had decided. Um, and I sat down one night in my room at university reading the Bible. And I don't know how much you know about the Mormon faith, but they have other books that they read alongside the Bible. And um, I remember picking up my Bible and the very end of Revelation, it says, uh, do not add or take away from the words of this book. And it was like God struck me. And he said, Sarah... This is the way, this is the way. That other stuff, that's off kilter. And that, for me, was the moment that I really started to investigate what it really meant to have a full relationship with Jesus in my life. So I, you know, I, I find the, book, the Bible such... Obviously, it's a significant book, but it really was. The words of the Bible were such a significant part of my journey to becoming a Christian. Um, so what is the Bible? That's a good place to start as we look at the Bible this morning. Well, there are some factual things that we can say about the Bible. The Bible is factually the best-selling book of all time. Uh, it's the book that has sold more copies than any other book worldwide. By 2021, it had been translated into 717 different languages. It's a book that many of the laws of our current land were based upon. So there are many things that we kind of just take for granted as to how we live our lives or the rules that we have of this land, but actually didn't come into place until the Christian faith was brought into this country. And for many other countries around the world that maybe have other faiths at the center of their country, they live by different laws and they do things differently. But it's also a book that for many would say it's irrelevant. They would say it's a fairy tale, it's a good story, but that's it. Full of contradictions, out of date, many, many different things that people think about the Bible. For many of us, and that probably you know, includes all of us at some point, it's become a self-help book, where we want to find something that helps us, so we flick through, we find a verse and go, oh, that tells me what I want to hear, I'm going to take that verse, I'm going to put it up on my fridge, and that's going to be the verse I'm going to live to. And then suddenly, what that verse says doesn't happen, and you start questioning, where are you, God? It becomes a self-help book that doesn't always help us in the way that we want it to in all circumstances. For many of us, we call the Bible the Word of God, which is God's Word speaking to us nowadays. But if we read the Bible, there is also something else, someone else who is called the Word of God when we read the book of John, which is in the New Testament, right at the start of the book of John, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God's Word. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus, God's Son. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Pete Gregg, in his book, uh, How to Hear God, says Jesus himself is the preeminent and ultimate word of God. Jesus is the word of God. That the Bible is a book that tells the story leading up to Jesus and then tells of Jesus' life. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus and tells of Jesus. God's Son here on this earth as the ultimate word of God. 
I don't know how many of you have listened to The Bible Project. It's a brilliant free podcast that I would highly recommend to people. Uh, it ex- unpacks and explores the Bible in depth and puts it into cultural context. It's brilliant for unpacking and unlocking the Bible in new ways. But the mission statement of The Bible Project says... Our mission is to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. This isn't a load of random books. This is one story from the beginning to the end, all about Jesus. When I started at Bible college, the first essay that I ever had to write was on the book of Judges. Now, I don't know how many of you have read the book of Judges, But it is quite a problematic book, particularly as a woman. I read it, and it is horrific. Horrific things happen. It's full of violence, just horrible, horrible things. It was a really hard essay to write. I wasn't like, woohoo, here we go. But if I take that book as a book on its own, out of context, and go, right, God, this is your book. What are you going to talk to me about? I'm left going, God, where are you? How did these things happen? How did these hideous, horrific things happen and you allow them? But yet, if I look at that book in the whole book of the Bible as one unified story about Jesus, then I say, God, you knew that we couldn't do this on our own. You knew that we as humans would turn our backs on you and we would get it wrong and horrible, awful things would happen. And so you had a plan to send your son down to this earth so that we could have a redemption a relationship with you now, but also forever in eternity. It was a unified story that all about Jesus. And there has been lots of things written about why it was that Jesus came when he did. That because of the empire, it meant that news could travel quicker. So many different things, and you can read about them in some of the books that I'll kind of go on to recommend in a minute. There was the reason that Jesus came at that moment in that unified story all about him. When I started my... um, my studies at Bible College, I want to say that this book was actually also one of the most helpful books for me to really understand how the Old Testament and Jesus fitted into the Old Testament through up until the New Testament. It's a book that was given to my children. It's called the Jesus Storyteller Bible. It is a brilliant book. It is beautifully illustrated and it is so simple, but it helps us to understand how Jesus fits into all of the Old Testament until his story is told when he comes down to this earth. I can't recommend it enough. Because sometimes we think that when we look at the Bible, we have to unpack all these really complicated things and read all these deep theology books. Great, there's a place for that, but sometimes it's the really simple things as well where we can say, actually... God, you're going to speak to me in so many different ways and help me to understand the richness and the beauty of your word to each one of us. So if if this is a book all about Jesus, then I need to know, we need to know that what it says about Jesus is true because that is the thing on which it all crumbles. If what I'm reading in the Bible about Jesus is not true, then the whole of my faith crumbles away because we're basing it on Jesus as the word of God, and this being a story all about Jesus. We're going to be looking specifically at the character and the person of Jesus next week, which I'm sure will be brilliant and really helpful. So in the New Testament, there are four books, which we call the Gospels. They are the accounts of Jesus's life. They were written by four different people in four different places. So it's thought that the Gospels were written about 25 to 50 years after the life of Jesus. They were written by Mark, Luke, John, and Matthew. It's thought that Mark wrote in Rome, Luke wrote in Antioch or Rome, John wrote in Ephesus, and Matthew wrote in Judea. 
four completely different places away from one another up to 50 years after the life of Jesus. And these aren't modern biographies. I don't know how many of you love reading a biography or an autobiography, uh, but often if you have one, it starts with kind of when the person is born through to when they die or through to the modern day if they are still alive. But actually, that isn't what happens when you read the books about Jesus' life. Because there is a disproportionate amount of time given to the week leading up to Jesus' death and then the events after he comes back to life again at the resurrection. Almost a third of each of those books writes about that very short period of time. Because that is the moment that God says we need to take hold of. This is the moment that our faith stands upon. That Jesus, God's son down on this earth, God on this earth, died and then rose again. We don't need to know what Jesus had for breakfast when he was 18. That's not an important part of the story. So when we think about, were these accounts that we read actually true? Well, Matthew and John were both disciples of Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They are writing stories about what they saw when they were with Jesus. As we heard already read to us this morning, whilst Luke and Mark weren't actually disciples of Jesus, we read in the book of Luke right at the beginning, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I investigated carefully myself everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Luke looked into it. He spoke to eyewitnesses. He wanted to find out what it was that people actually saw and people actually said. With the earliest fragments that we have of the Bible first written down, they reckon have been dated to about 80 years after the life of Jesus. You can find them in the, New, in the British Museum in London from the book of John. How amazing. We've actually got things that were written 80 years after Jesus was on this earth that still exist now that we can go and see. But how can we sure that these are eyewitnesses' accounts? How can we be sure that we're actually reading the truth? Because if we know that these things are definitely true, then everything is true. And for the people around us who are saying, actually, these are just fairy tales. These aren't that important. These are just nice stories. It's just a nice story that someone's written down. I'm glad it helps you, but it's not important to me. Actually, if we know that these are true, for everyone around us, that changes things as well. Loads of brilliant books have been written about this, looking at all of kind of historical documentation about why we can trust the Bibles. We're not going to go through it all this morning because it would take a significantly long time, but I just wanted to recommend a few books. All of these are on the church blog if you want to go and have a look for them as resources. One is a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Balcom, an amazing book which tells, uh, really looks into the historical detail of why we can believe the accounts of Jesus. The second is a slightly shorter book, slightly easier to read, called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. We're just going to look at one little bit of some of the research that Richard Balcom did uh, to help us understand why we can trust these accounts of the Gospels, but there are so many. This is one little thing in the midst of many, 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 and then we'll go and look at how it really impacts us. So back in 2002, there was some research done in Germany. The research was done by someone who was looking at popular Jewish names in the first century. So around the time that Jesus was uh, alive, just after he was alive, uh, what were the most popular Jewish names? And the person who was doing this research wasn't doing it for faith-based reasons. They were doing it for historical reasons. They were using kind of archaeological inscriptions and as much kind of data as they could possibly find. 
Richard Balcombe, the following year, got hold of this research and realized this is hugely significant as we read the Bible and as we really look at, is this true? And what are these eyewitnesses' accounts? So the research that was found looks at different big, large Jewish communities in different areas. In the area of Judea, the Jewish community where Jesus was, where Jesus was living and was walking with his disciples, they found the top five Jewish men's names, most popular men's names, were in this order. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, and John. The top woman's name was Mary. They found out that just a few miles away in another large Jewish community in Egypt, the top five male names were Lazarus, Sabbateus, Joseph, Dotheus, and Papias. Some of those names aren't even in the Gospels because that isn't where Jesus was. But the names that were the five most popular male names and the most popular female name that were from the area where Jesus was living and doing his ministry are all in the Bible. And they are all frequently in the Gospels. That is a huge coincidence. If somebody is writing 50 years about a story that happened in an area where they're not even living. To put it into context, it would be if I decided to go and write a novel about Stoke-on-Trent in 1972. And in my novel, I managed to get the names of the characters that I use spot on for what were the top names of men and women in Stoke-on-Trent in 1972. On Thursday, I spent two hours Googling on the internet to try and find out what were the top names in Stoke-on-Trent in 1972. Two hours of my life, I couldn't find what those names were. Even with the internet, it wasn't there. That information could not be found. I did find, however, that in Stoke-on-Trent in 2019, Mohammed was the top boy's name and Ava was the top girl's name. So that's an interesting fact if it comes up in a pub quiz for you. <laughs> But it is a massively important part of research. The other thing that Richard Balcom noticed was that when you look at the names used in the Bible, such as Simon, which was the top boy's name in the area where Jesus was doing his ministry, we never just read the word, the name Simon in the Gospels. It's always followed up by another name, Simon the Tanner, Simon Zealot, Simon Peter. Because Simon was such a popular name, they had to distinguish between who it was. It's the same thing that happens at Riverside House at the moment. Me, Sarah Auger, Sarah Thompson, our children's worker. I got four emails last week about the children's work because it's Sarah. We now have to change how we talk about Sarah's at Riverside House because people randomly say Sarah in a meeting and we're like, what do you mean, Sarah Auger or Sarah Thompson? I never used to be Sarah Auger at work. I was just Sarah. Now I'm Sarah Auger. And that's what we see in the Bible. This is a huge coincidence, but it isn't a coincidence because actually it tells us we know that these were eyewitness accounts. These were people hearing stories of the things that actually happened. The name Philip was the 61st most popular name in Judea at the time. When we read the word name Philip in the Gospels, we just read Philip because there were probably no other Philips. They weren't distinguishing who it was. Simon, they needed to. Philip, they didn't. It wasn't a popular name. So if we've looked at what uh, is in the Bible, looked at what is the Bible, we've dipped our toes into how we can know the Bible is true, why then should I engage with the Bible? It might be that you're kind of sitting there going, yeah, I know all this, I believe this is true, and that's brilliant, but why should I really engage with this? Some recent uh, research that was done by the Barna Group in America found out that 78% of Americans own a physical copy of the Bible 
but only 9% read it regularly. Alongside that, research done in the UK found that 40% of Christian teenagers say they never read the Bible. In response to that, Tim Elford, who is the National Director of Limitless, which is a Christian festival that many of our young people went with John, our youth worker, over the summer, in response said, if the Bible is undervalued and undermined, then everything deconstructs. Because what are we basing what we believe upon? If we are not really getting stuck into this, if we are not really understanding what God wants to say to us through the Bible, then what are we basing what we believe upon? Because we're going to be basing it upon our experiences. This awful thing happened to me. I went through this. That bad thing happened. This great thing happened. I celebrated this. Oh, and that's how I see God. Or we're basing it upon our feelings. When we're feeling fantastic and things are going our way, I feel so close to you, God. When we're on our knees and when we're broken, God, where are you? We're basing it upon the things that we feel. We'll be basing it upon others' opinions, the books that we read or the friends who are around us, telling us, oh, do you know this? This is, this is how you should live your life. This is what God says. But is it what God says? Maybe we'll be basing it upon our social media accounts. And depending upon what your political views are, how you voted in Brexit, how you voted in the last general election, what you are reading on social media will be really different. And so often it can be so persuasive and you will think it's true. Is that what we're basing our faith upon? Pete Gregg uh, goes on to say in his book, How to Hear God, if we understand what the Bible means, but never hear what it says to me personally, I have information without revelation. But conversely, if, it, if I disregard its original context and ignore the bits I don't like or I don't understand, I will be in grave danger of abusing God's word by confusing it with my own feelings, preferences, and prejudices. This is a book all about Jesus. It's a book where from the beginning, when we first turned our backs on God, God put a rescue plan into place to come down to this earth by sending his son, a unified story all about Jesus. But actually at the center of this story, beyond and above everything, is me, is you, is all of us, everyone out in this community, out in the world. Because God said right at the beginning of his word, I want to make this world and I want to be in relationship with people. That's why he made the earth, to be in relationship with us, to walk with us. And in that moment when we turned our backs on him and we decided to go our own way, he put into action a rescue plan. He put into action coming down to this earth for every single one of us because simply he loves us so much that he wants to be in relationship with us now, but he wants to be in relationship with us forever in eternity. And as we open this book... As we start reading it and really understanding it or listening to it if we don't like reading or simply looking at more simple versions of it if that's how we connect and understand, actually God wants to simply say, I love you. I think you're fantastic. I want to be in relationship with you. And how are you going to know that? You're going to know that by really getting stuck into this book because otherwise what are we basing our lives upon? We're doing it on our own and that's going to be a struggle. And when things happen that throw us slightly off kilter or aren't the things that we want to happen, how are we doing that? But God says, do you know what? I will never throw you off kilter. I'm a rock on which you stand. In the highs, in the lows, I sent my son to die for you. 
because you were worth it and I want to be in relationship with you.